Glory to Jesus Christ. Annunciation Byzantine Catholic Parish presents Light of the East, a program revealing how the Eastern Catholic Churches have nourished the Roman Catholic Churches and today's world in profound ways through their histories, traditions, mysteries, and spirituality. Hello, I am Father Thomas J. Loya, pastor of Annunciation of the Mother of God Byzantine Catholic Church in Homer Glen, Illinois, and this is a story of the Eastern Churches, an inspiring story of faith, courage, intrigue, mystery, spirituality, dissension, and reconciliation. But most of all, this is an expression of a great experience of faith through our unique divine liturgy. Join with me now as we look toward the Light of the East. Light of the East is also supported by Eastern Christian Publications, where you can find the prayers of the Catholic Byzantine Daily Office at ecpubs.com and by easternchristianmedia.com, a broadband network for you to learn more about the Eastern Catholic Churches. That's easternchristianpublications.com. Glory to Jesus Christ. Welcome to Light of the East. I am Father Thomas Lawyer, your host. When I was growing up as a child, I would watch war movies, war-type movies on TV. I would always be struck as a child at the importance, the reverence that the soldiers would have in battle in regard to the flag. The flag would be carried in front of the troops, especially in wars like the Civil War, Revolutionary War, those kinds of wars. Whenever there were movies about those kinds of wars, I used to enjoy watching them as a kid. It was always remarkable to me how the reverence for the flag was always so so prevalent in these movies. If a soldier was carrying a flag, of course, he was kind of a target. <laughs> and if he would go down, the other soldiers would say, the flag, the flag, and somebody inevitably would pick it up. And they might get shot too. But someone else would pick it up. But always they kept the flag up in front of the soldiers. And as long as they looked at the flag... It goaded them on. It gave them encouragement. Here you have a piece of cloth, a flag, that can have that kind of power to soldiers in battle. It's something like we read about in the Old Testament. Remember when Moses and the Israelites were battling Amalek, and God told Moses to put his hands in the form of a cross, raise his hands up, as long as his arms were outstretched like that, and the Israelites looked upon Moses in that position they would win the battle. If his arms began to drop, they would start to lose. So symbols can have tremendous power, whether we just see them or even touch them, as in the case of icons. We're going to talk about the power of healing, the power of inspiration, of images and icons. But before we do that, I just want to offer some thanks to all of you who have written to us lately and share with us the power of your own kindness and friendship. I'd like to thank our good friend, Jean Bray, from Tohuya, Washington. Thank you, Jean, for your very, very kind letter and some of the information you sent to us. And also, once again, Patricia Wagner from Utica, Illinois. Thank you, Patricia, and thank you, Jean, both of you, for writing to us. 
We always enjoy getting letters from you or even emails. If you want to email to me, the best one would be Tabor Life, like Mount Tabor, Tabor Life at earthlink.net. Now back to this idea of icons or images that have power to them. On August 16th, in the Byzantine liturgical calendar, we celebrate, and this was just a few days ago, we celebrate the transfer of the icon of our Lord Jesus Christ, which is called the icon not made with human hands. And I'm going to read the story of that icon to you from the Synaxarian, which, as you know, is one of those books that I recommend. It comes in four volumes, and it's a book that has the information of the saint of the day, or the feast day of the day in the Byzantine liturgical calendar, and also has some marvelous meditations in it. It's a marvelous thing to have, especially for the domestic church. In other words, gather the family around each time, each day, at a certain time, and read about the saint. Read the meditation. It doesn't take long, but it's very valuable. Well, from the Synaxarian for August 16th, it says this, In the time that our Lord was preaching the gospel and healing every disease and every infirmity among the people, there was in the city of Edessa, on the banks of the Euphrates, now of course Euphrates is in modern-day Iraq, a certain prince, Avgar, who was riddled with leprosy, he heard of Christ, the healer of every pain and weakness, and he sent a portrait painter, Ananias, to Palestine with a letter to Christ, in which he begged the Lord to come to Odessa and heal him of his leprosy. In the event of the Lord's not being able to come, the prince commanded Ananias to paint his likeness and bring it, believing that the portrait would heal him. The Lord replied that he could not come, as the time of his passion was at hand. And he took a napkin and wiped his face, leaving a perfect reproduction of his most pure face on the napkin. The Lord gave this napkin to Ananias with a message to say that the prince would be healed by it, but not entirely. And he would therefore send him later an envoy who would rid him of the remainder of the disease. Receiving the napkin, Avgar kissed it, and the leprosy fell from his body, with just a little remaining on his face. Later, the apostle Thaddeus, preaching the gospel, came to Avgar, healed him secretly, and baptized him. Then the prince smashed the idols that stood at the city's gateway and placed the napkin with the face of Christ above the entrance, stuck onto wood surrounded with a gold frame and ornamented with pearls. The prince also wrote above the icon in the gateway, O Christ our God, no one who hopes in you will be put to shame. Later, one of Adgar's great-grandsons restored idolatry, and the bishop of Edessa came by night and walled in the icon above the gateway. Well, centuries passed. In the time of the emperor Justinian, the Persian king attacked Edessa, and the city was in great affliction. The bishop of Edessa, Eulabius, had a vision of the Most Holy Mother of God who revealed to him the secret of the icon walled in and forgotten. The icon was found, and by its power, the Persian army was defeated. Now, this icon, not made with human hands, as we call it in the Byzantine church, is often placed above the entrance to the altar, just as it was to the entrance of the city in this great story. And this is a very ancient story. And in the Byzantine churches today, above the sanctuary, there's, there's a grand arch. And in front of that arch is the icon screen. It separates the sanctuary from the nave. Well, on that arch, 
above the icon screen or above the altar itself. Usually there's a couple of arches in what would be very classic Byzantine architecture. And above the arch, over the icon screen, is painted this icon not made with human hands. And what it looks like, it looks like it's the face of Christ on a cloth. And the cloth is being held up by an angel on either side. Now, many people are familiar with Veronica's veil, but there's another interesting story about that. You know, it's interesting how things might change over time, stories and legends. Think of the word Veronica, the name Veronica. There are some who believe that the story of Veronica's veil is really a kind of a variation or a, or a morphing of this story of the icon not made with human hands. Because again, you had the element of a cloth being touched to the face of Christ and his face being perfectly imprinted on the cloth. You have that in both stories. But the name Veronica, some believe, actually is a variation of what in the original language means true icon or true image. Vero icon, vero icon, Veronica. Get it? You can see how over time things like that can change and morph into another story. Maybe two stories actually did happen, two occurrences of this. We don't know. But there are some theories out there that it's actually one story that got morphed into two variations. But the point is, is that an icon, and certainly this one in the case of an icon not made with human hands, in other words, it was made, of course, by Christ's face himself, that the icon has power, power to heal. Now, the power to heal comes from both touching the icon or being touched by it, but also being in the presence of it, gazing upon it, praying in the presence of it. In the Latin Rite Church, there is the very popular and beautiful tradition called the Eucharistic Adoration, where people sit before the presence of our Lord in the Eucharist, which is in the presence, of course, of the host that's in a monstrance. Sometimes it's in the church itself, or it's in a special room off of the church or next to the church. Many Latin Rite parishes today have the custom of having perpetual adoration, where they actually have people that come in on shifts 24-7. And of all, I also have been informed by Latin Rite parishes that many of those parishes that have that custom have seen the increase of vocations from those parishes and other marvelous things happening. So in the Latin Rite, they sit before the presence of Christ, which is in the host. People ask me, do you have Eucharistic adoration in the Eastern churches? We don't have that per se or in the exact same way, but we do have the custom of sitting before icons or praying amidst an icon, in the presence of an icon. As far as the Eucharist goes, in a sense, we have Eucharistic adoration. In a sense, we have Eucharistic adoration because the Eucharist is always in the tabernacle. It's always present in the tabernacle, and the tabernacle is always on the main altar, the altar of sacrifice in the church. So if you're sitting in a Byzantine church, you're always sitting in the presence of Christ, of the Eucharist. It's just that it's not exposed. That would be the big difference. It always remains in the tabernacle. But still, the presence of Christ in the Eucharist is there, and you can sit, stand, or whatever before that presence in prayer meditation. But we also use icons for that. Now, we're not putting icons in the exact same level, of course, as the Eucharist itself. However, icons are 
inspired works of art, the follow certain, I call it, canons, and they do communicate the presence of God, just as the Eucharist does, but in a different way. But the important thing is, is that imagery, just like that flag that I mentioned with the soldiers, if a flag can have that kind of inspiration and power to motivate soldiers in battle, to even endanger their lives, how much more so can an icon, whether made with or without human hands? I'm Father Thomas Loya on Light of the East. Light of the East mission is Christianity's reunion, and to tell the story of the Eastern Lung of the Catholic Church, we need your support. In order to keep Light of the East on the air, you can make a donation now by going to byzantinecatholic.com. That's byzantinecatholic.com. And then donate securely using any major credit card. With your help, we can keep Light of the East's illumination bright. It's no secret that Father Loya and other speakers from the Tabor Life Institute are available to speak at your parish or group on marriage and family topics seen through the lens of St. John Paul II's Theology of the Body. Other topics include Eastern Christian spirituality and the significance of art in the church. The Tabor Life Institute can arrange for marriage encounters, parish missions, and can help your parish facilitate teen faith formation in either English or Spanish. For Father Loyup and other speakers, contact the Tabor Life Institute by writing to taborlife at earthlink.net. That's Tabor spelled T-A-B-O-R life at earthlink.net. You're listening to Father Thomas Loya on Light of the East. You are listening to the choirs of Annunciation Byzantine Catholic Church under the direction of Timothy Woods in Homer Glen, Illinois. This is the music you hear on Light of the East and is sung during the Sacred Liturgy at Annunciation Byzantine Catholic Parish. Order online at byzantinecatholic.com. All we ask is a donation of $15 or more, which includes shipping and handling, to Annunciation Parish for each Theosis CD. Send a check made out to Annunciation Parish at 14610 Wilcook Road. Homer Glen, Illinois, 60491. And may God grant you. Welcome back to Light of the East. I am Father Thomas Loyal, your host. We're talking about the healing and inspirational power of imagery, especially of icons. Whether we touch an icon or we are touched by an icon or we gaze upon the icon or in its presence, there are some icons who have been known to have miraculous power. Certainly, a very famous and ancient one, according to an ancient story and tradition, was the icon not made with human hands. Sometimes confused, or maybe it is a separate story, of Veronica's veil. But there's another icon that also had miraculous powers. And at this point, I'm going to point you in the direction of a few pilgrimages, one of which has to do with a miraculous icon. 
But first, the pilgrimage I want to speak to you about is the one that I'll be directing. I'm the spiritual director for a pilgrimage to Fatima from Thursday to Thursday. It's eight days, October 26th through November 2nd. It's a pilgrimage and retreat. It's not just a trip. It's a pilgrimage and a retreat. And we're going to see a lot of marvelous things, beautiful things, including the home of the children to whom Mary appeared. We're going to visit Lisbon's major sites, including the Shrine of St. Anthony. And we're going to enjoy a walled medieval town, Obidos, and Nazare, a famous fishing village. We'll also explore the historic monastery of Santa Maria de Victoria in Batala and Santarim, the location of a Eucharistic miracle. And again, this is Thursday to Thursday, October 26th through November 2nd, a pilgrimage and retreat to Fatima. One of the main focuses of this retreat and pilgrimage will be the Byzantine chapel. There's a beautiful Byzantine chapel there. So that gives you an opportunity to go on a retreat and pilgrimage that breathes with both lungs, east and west. To register for this, the best thing to do is to email horizons at parma.org, horizons at parma.org. In the subject line, put the name Laura. Laura is the editor of the Horizon, and she is organizing this trip. Horizons at Parma.org. Subject line, Laura, for the pilgrimage retreat to Fatima. There's another pilgrimage I want to encourage you to go to. This one happens every year during Labor Day weekend at Mount St. Macrina, beautiful Mount St. Macrina in Uniontown, Pennsylvania. It's sponsored by the Sisters of St. Basil the Great, who warmly invite you to the 83rd, 83rd annual pilgrimage in honor of Our Lady of Perpetual Help. Now, that's interesting. That's another east-west breathe with both lungs opportunity for you because the icon of Our Lady of Perpetual Help, which there's a version of it there at Mount St. Macrina, which was given to them by a pope. And it's an icon that is shared by both east and west. It's probably the most famous universal common icon in the church. Our Lady of Perpetual Help. Now, this is Labor Day weekend. That's Saturday and Sunday, September 2nd and 3rd of this year. It's called Mary, Life-Giving Spring. Come and participate in the beautiful divine liturgies, the mystery of reconciliation, a popular children's procession, inspiring candlelight vigils, adult enrichment sessions, and a festal icon shrine walk. Festal Icon Shrine Walk. That's, again, that's at Mount St. Macrina, Uniontown, Pennsylvania. I plan to be there myself. And to find out about it, go to sistersofsaintbasil.org. Sistersofsaintbasil.org. It's a beautiful, beautiful place. And again, 83 years, these sisters have been hosting this beautiful pilgrimage. It's really a special place. Special, very special place. Again, go to sistersofsaintbasil.org to find out more information about it. It's Labor Day weekend, so that should be easy enough for you to get to. <laughs> Okay, another place of pilgrimage. This is in my own eparchy of Parma, which is in Burton, Ohio, a beautiful rural area. In fact, it's surrounded by Amish. And there's a wonderful monastery there, a wonderful group of young nuns called the Christ the Bridegroom Monastery. But that monastery sits on the grounds of a shrine to Our Lady of Mariapoch. Our Lady of Mariapoch actually has an interesting history to it and an interesting icon. I'm going to read to you from the booklet that you can get at St. Stephen's Cathedral in Vienna. That's right, St. Stephen's Cathedral in Vienna. That's in Austria. The reason I'm reading to you from that book, because I want you to understand the source from where I'm getting this story. Here's, here's, this, here's the, okay, okay, from this book, from the book, from St. Stephen's Cathedral in Vienna, 
Austria. On the southwest High Gothic Baldachin altar is the highly revered icon of Maria Poch. We usually call it Maria Poch. On December 1st, 1697, it was put up on the high altar above the tabernacle for purposes of worship. It was moved to the spot in 1945. I've been there, so what you do is when you walk into the cathedral, it's immediately to your right, and there's always people praying there. The likeness is named after its place of origin, Poch. That's actually spelled P-O-C-S, but the C is pronounced like a C-H, Poch. In northern Hungary, the Diocese of Eger, where it was painted by Stephen Pepp in 1676. Upon being mounted in the village church in 1696, it shed tears. Ultimately, the fame of the miracle-working painting reached the imperial court of Vienna. Emperor Leopold I had the painting brought to Vienna and kept in his residence. After having been displayed in various churches for devotional purposes by popular request of the Viennese, it subsequently reached its final place of worship in the cathedral. Now, here's the very interesting part. Prince Eugene's decisive victory over the Turks, the Muslim Turks, Battle of Zenta, was attributed to devotion to this icon of Maria Poch. And guess when that battle happened? It was a battle of Zenta. It happened in 1697, which is about a year after the painting was actually painted and then it shed tears. But on the date that this battle happened, in which the Austro-Hungarian Christian Empire was spared from being overrun by Islam, that victory to which they attribute devotion to this icon, happened on, are you ready for this? 9-11. That's right, September 11th, 1697. Thereupon, the Habsburgs promoted the icon to the status of a palladium, which means a personal devotional shrine of their empire. Iconographically, the painting is of the Maria Candida type, or Hodegetria, which means the guide. It shows Mary pointing to Christ, which means she's pointing the way to us. She's pointing us to Christ. And according to tradition, it goes back to St. Luke's image of Mary. That, that form of the icon of the mother of God in Christ goes back to the, the original one painted by St. Luke. On the occasion of the transfer of the painting to the cathedral, Empress Eleonora donated a magnificent frame bearing the name Rosa Mystica, perhaps alluding to the rose in the child's hand. This frame was replaced by today's unpretentious Baldacan crown silver frame in 1776. Empress Eleonora also donated on the same occasion a sumptuous vestment named after her, which is used annually on December 8th. Of course, that's the Feast of the Immaculate Conception. Or as we say in the Eastern churches, the conception of the Mother of God in the womb of St. Anne. Now, a copy of this miraculous icon of Maria Poch, and again, the miraculous one is in the Cathedral of Vienna in Austria, but a copy of that was recently given to my eparchy, to the Shrine of Maria Poch in Burton, Ohio, by our bishops in Europe. And so if you go to the Shrine of Our Lady of Maria Poch in Burton, Ohio, and, you make it, and I would suggest you make a pilgrimage there, the shrine itself is open until October, but you can visit the sisters there anytime because they live there on the monastery grounds of the shrine. If you go there, Make a pilgrimage, and I would suggest that you make it for the intention of world peace, especially to pray 
for the end of this radical Islamic terrorism that is so terrorizing the world and encroaching upon Christianity as it did during the time of the icon, the original icon of, of Madia Poch. So I think it's rather providential. And I'm rather proud to say in a good way, and I'm, I feel very blessed that in my particular eparchy, we have this icon, which now is very timely in its devotional power. I'm going to thank you for listening. I'm Father Thomas Loya on Light of the East. To hear Light of the East again, visit ByzantineCatholic.com and click on the Features and Programs tab and on iTunes. Thank you for listening to Light of the East. We encourage you to tell a friend about Light of the East and to visit ByzantineCatholic.com. Light of the East is produced by ADC Media. Catholic Radio because we need the voice of the church in the public forum. We live in a time that the secular voice dominates so thoroughly that we need to get that Catholic perspective out. Just as Fulton Sheen used radio and TV in the last century, we need to continue to use this means to announce the Catholic faith in the public forum. Bishop Robert Barron thinks Catholic Radio is important. So should you. Thank you for listening. Next week, we will return to the light of the East. To learn more about Annunciation Byzantine Catholic Parish, visit our website, byzantinecatholic.com, where you will also find an archive of all of our programs. In order to continue Light of the East with its mission of Christianity's reunion, we need your support with a donation. Any amount will be a blessing. Please make out a check to Light of the East Radio and send it to Light of the East, 14610 Will Cook Road, Homer Glen, Illinois, 60491. That's Light of the East, 14610 Wilcook Road, spelled W-I-L-L-C-O-O-K Road, Homer Glen, Illinois. Or donate online on the homepage of ByzantineCatholic.com. From the Light of the East, a new dawn of unity is in sight. God bless you, go with God, and may God grant you many happy years. Oh!